Thank you so much for those songs, Brandon. Uh, so even though this isn't the prodigal son parable, that song still relates. Uh, we're going to be looking at a series of three parables. Um, in the scripture reading, there's one more parable in chapter 22 uh, that connects with the previous parables. We'll be looking at all three. And what we're going to see in these parables is that they are all centered on the will and on making a choice when confronted with the truth and with the authority of the king. Um, There's a uniqueness to these parables, and I want to start by emphasizing something that we looked at last week, parables being an extension of interactions. There's one parable in verse 28 through 32. It's not called a parable, but Jesus in verse 33 says, listen to another So implying, you know, obviously the little story in verse 28 uh, through 30 is a parable. Um, These these parables extend an interaction in verses 23 through 27. And so I think it's helpful to set the scene for the reason why Jesus teaches these things particularly. In parables that relate to the context of interactions, Seeing those interactions helps us gain more lessons from the parables themselves. This is Jesus' final week in Jerusalem. Kind of an interesting thing in the Gospels. You see Jesus going to Jerusalem again and again in John's Gospel. But in Matthew, this is actually the only time besides at the very beginning when uh, you see some, some interactions with Herod and the wise men in Jerusalem Generally, in Matthew, you see Jesus continuously in the Galilean region, and he's very silent about the times that Jesus went to Jerusalem for Passovers and such celebrations. And so this is very climactic in Jesus' life in Matthew. He's entered into Jerusalem. He's near the end of his ministry. In verses 12 through 17, Jesus finds in the temple people who are buying and selling, and they're turning the temple into a place of profit and business. And so he ends up turning over their tables and uh, he ends up pouring out their their money. And in verse 13, he says, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Jesus proceeds to heal people in the temple. And the next day, in verse 23, as he's going into the temple, the chief priests and the elders confront him with the question, By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? And it seems like they're asking that question because Jesus has basically taken over the city and the temple now. He drove out the money changers and the people making it a place of business, and it seems like the chief priests and elders were completely okay with that. And so they seemingly, at first glance, ask what, you know, could almost seem like maybe it's a genuine question. And Jesus very quickly exposes that it is not a genuine question, And so he says, well, let me ask you a question in verse 24. And he says, if you tell me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 25, the baptism of John. Was it from one source, from heaven or from men? Very simple question, right? Very simple. He gives them two options. And in verse 25, as they begin reasoning among themselves, they think, well, if we say the baptism of John was from heaven, well, now he's going to ask, well, why didn't we believe in him? implying, by the way, they didn't accept John or his baptism. And then if they say in verse 26, well, it's from men, well, the people are going to stone us, we're afraid of the people. 
So they basically tell Jesus, well, we're not going to choose either of those options. We don't know where it's from. And that's just entirely dishonest. And Jesus says, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. I think it's important to understand who Jesus was talking to here. The other parables we've looked at, Jesus is talking to his disciples or crowds very specifically here. Jesus is talking to the people who have proven again and again and again and again through his entire ministry that they are dishonest, they're not interested in the truth, and they're hard-hearted. Yet Jesus continues to reason with them to reach into their hearts. I cannot overstate how brilliant Jesus' approach to them is here. He proves they're dishonest. We know that. And in verse 28, while I think locking them into the interaction by their response and their interest now in what Jesus is saying and maybe even their fear of the people and their image because this didn't go well. He says, well, what do you think? And then he begins to tell this parable. And then in verse 33, after he speaks very strongly, he says, well, listen to another parable. And then in verse 22, or chapter 22, verse 1, Jesus spoke to them again in parables And then in verse 15 of 22, the Pharisees went out and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. So three parables. Jesus is talking specifically to people who are dishonest and hard-hearted, and yet his teaching is to reach into their hearts, almost like resuscitating someone with shock and electrocution from the dead. Um, It's just amazing. He ends up turning things around where they ask, well, what's your authority? And really he ends up uh, convicting them and backing them into a corner where really they should be concerned rather about his authority in a way that is different than what they were asking initially. Before we talk more about the parable, I think there is an important point here. Jesus did not treat people like robots or computers. The way that Jesus reasoned with people His expectation wasn't like a coin machine. You put in a quarter and out comes the right response. It wasn't put in the magic code, say the right words, and out comes a reprogrammed mentality, and voila, you have somebody who understands and believes the truth. Jesus treated people as people with minds that needed to reason, with hearts that needed to believe, Jesus would talk to people and with people, not at them. He didn't have unreasonable expectations. He was very bold in these interactions. He's very clear, even with these parables, in very uncomfortable ways. But he's reasoning with them. He's trying to engage them. He's trying to ignite their thinking, their conviction, their heart. And all of these parables are like special gifts that are lovingly given to them to open the door of the kingdom that they've shut for themselves. It's very amazing. And I think through all of the boldness that we'll see, it's important to remember these are actually things that are said extraordinarily lovingly to them to open the door rather than close it. So let's start with the parable of the sons and think about what's significant in this parable in verse 28. So he begins by engaging them. But what do you think? A man had two sons. And he came to the first and said, Go, or son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. 
Which of the two did the will of the father or of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. This is a very simple story and it's obviously interactive in nature. It's so simple that even the hard-hearted can answer it correctly. A father tells his two sons to work in his vineyard. Well, one says he won't, the first one, but in verse 29, he regretted saying that and he goes and does it anyway. The other one, in verse uh, 30, he says, I will, sir. I mean, very polite, very motivating, says, you know, he'll do it, so that's, that's great. But, obviously, he doesn't actually go. So, Jesus asks them, says, okay, well, what do you think? Uh, who did the Father's will? And they answer correctly. We talked last week about how with parables, Jesus will use caricatures, not characters, but caricatures, people easy to condemn, things easy for us and simple to notice, so that ultimately we can be more convicted of things that we are either deliberately overlooking because of pride, or things that can be very subtle, ways we can justify ourselves. Parables are meant to equip us, remember, to be better students of our heart, where we are, our condition. And so parables help us to study ourselves in relation to God. And so they answer correctly. It's very simple. And Jesus immediately in verse 31 and 32 says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into heaven before you. And he brings them back to John. This is the one thing from the simple parable I want to emphasize. There's something very fundamental Jesus brings them back to. It's interesting that they had a question about something related to maybe Jesus driving the, the money changers out of the temple and all of that. And he brings them back to something so fundamental, I'm sure they maybe wish they could have forgotten about it. John's ministry was over three years ago. That was a, a long time ago. I mean, you have to think like we've all moved on, right? No. Jesus says the problem with your, with your question is you've been building on the wrong foundation. There is something much more fundamental that needs to be considered. I remember in a Bible study one time, uh, studying with somebody, and we were talking about baptism for the remission of sins at one point through the study. And after we talked about it for a little bit, he stopped me and said, you know, Brian, can we just move on? You know, this stuff about salvation is just so basic. This is you know, this is so basic, we don't need to talk about this. I'm, I'm past all of this. When really he wasn't and really seriously needed to reconsider these things. And so imagine the Pharisees, the scribes, the temple leadership, just how it would have seemed for Jesus to bring up this seemingly fundamental thing that seemed so basic so far in the past, but they still needed to be confronted by it. Righteousness fundamentally. Notice in verse 32, John came in the way of righteousness. Righteousness comes from an honest heart that is reflective and tender toward truth. The closer we are to Jesus, Jesus keeps us set on that foundation. 
I've been meeting, reading Matthew recently and just have noticed that the people Jesus will challenge the most is his own disciples. And he says some shocking things to them over and over again. There's a phrase in Matthew I've noticed is used more than any other gospel. Oh, you of little faith. You know he says that to his disciples over and over and over and over again? And so being close to Jesus means we're confronted about what righteousness fundamentally is continuously, that we need to have an honest heart. And that's one of the greatest gifts God has given us from the very beginning. When he called to Adam and said, where are you? He was trying to draw out this great gift of a heart that can reflect, can be convicted, can feel remorse, can be honest and change. And even after Adam failed that initial test of conversation, he was still extended mercy as he walked out of the garden and was able to live on for hundreds of years afterward. One of the greatest gifts God has given us that is a part of our citizenship in God's kingdom, Jesus fundamentally said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Because the leadership had never set themselves on that foundation, Jesus would not let them escape it. And he would confront them boldly, not to drive them away, but to drive them onto the right foundation of repentance. Let's look at the next parable. The vineyard keepers, verse 33. Now, mind you, again, this is all the same conversation. Jesus is going for broke here. He is desperately trying to reach them. He's putting his hand right into their hearts And he's trying to ignite their hearts and their reasoning to bring them not to hostility, even if that is the initial response, but to humility. Verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first. They did the same thing. But afterward, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Notice this. They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So I want to jump right into what is significant in this parable. So, Kind of passingly, um, in verse 33, Jesus is nearly directly quoting a parable in Isaiah chapter 5 and expounding on it and kind of adjusting it to fit the situation. Um, My Bible has certain 
a certain part of it in all caps to emphasize it's nearly a word-for-word -word quotation. So something that they probably are familiar with and realize, hey, that's speaking against the unbelieving nation in Isaiah's time, evil people. And he says, well, actually, like most parables, it's you. So you have a landowner. And some translations call the vineyard keepers tenants, basically people that are just hired to take care of something that ultimately isn't theirs, but they're paid to take care of it. And the landowner and the tenants are both actually very unreasonable, but in very different ways that are opposite to one another. So the vine growers, obviously, the tenants, are unreasonable because they won't give to the landowner what obviously it belongs to him, and they are literally being paid money for the sole purpose of being there to take care of this thing, to give it to him who owns it. The reason the landowner is unreasonable is the patience he's giving them. One group of slaves is sent in verse 34. They took his slaves, beat one, killed another, stoned a third. So you think, okay, wow, that's, this was a mistake. Let's seize these people, let's imprison them or put them to death and let's hire some new people. No, verse 36, he sent another group, even larger than the first, and they did the same thing. And most shocking of all, and I think most unreasonable of all, how could he think they would respect his son? Like so many of these parables we've been looking at, there is something very unusual of the people who reflect Jesus and God in the parables that are taught. Just the graciousness, the mercy, and the love is difficult to even stop to appreciate even within the parable. And so even though these land, these land caretakers, these vineyard keepers, have been murdering his slaves group by group, humiliating them, abusing them, and you'd think that would be enough. But somehow he's convinced, oh, my fault. I, I should have started by maybe sending someone most respectable to them. And so really it's, it's my responsibility. I'll send my son, son now and they'll respect him. The amount of patience he's been exerting, the amount of hoping and believing the best in these people when they don't deserve it, being willing to look unjust toward his servants by letting them seem expendable for these unworthy people who clearly have deeply unrighteous and wicked attitudes. And when the sun comes, who he's hoping will change their mind, they say, this is the heir, come, let us kill him. You know what's funny is the landowner, for this to go this way, he valued the people who were evil more than his vineyard. I think at this point in the parable, we realize, okay, this isn't so much about the fruit anymore. It's not really something that he's willing to lose his son just to get some like grapes or something, right? So something else is going on here. He values those people more than his servants and maybe even more than his own son. He's willing to lose them all for them and to preserve the place he put them. The irony is, not only do these people value this son less than the vineyard itself, they value the vineyard more than they value their master paying them. So while the master values these hired servants more than even his own son, seemingly, they value the fruit itself 
more than they valued their master and all these who are sent to them. And I think as I put on the board, this is meant to be astonishing. How could anybody be like this? Nobody would be like this. But that's the point of the parable. God's mercy is astonishing. What we see in this parable and the next, the tragedy is that God's graciousness and mercy become the weapon that sin turns against him to rebel against him. So Jesus asks a very simple question again in verse 40. This is meant to be engaging for the people. Again, he's trying to ignite their hearts and ignite their reasoning. And so he says, okay, so here's what happened. Now what's the vineyard owner, what's he going to do? Well, they're very, they're very harsh. You know, this is like David when you remember he had murdered Bathsheba's husband because he committed adultery with her and she became pregnant. And David hardened his heart and was content to continue on in his rule with this sin lingering and festering. God sends a prophet to David. And ultimately the point of the story that Nathan brought, David in hostility said, the man who's done this deserves to die because he took this without compassion. Think about God's love for David. That he would send Nathan to then turn things and say, you are the man. I want to suggest to you that, that as much as God loved David and held David's hand into repentance, Jesus is holding these leaders, he is holding their hand as if they're even more infants than David was in their understanding. He doesn't just say, you are the man. He says, you know this scripture. Think about what God said. The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Verse 43, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. They know the scriptures. And it's as if Jesus has prophetically looked into their hearts. I know what you are intending to do. And they do the very thing Jesus was intending. So before we look further, verse 44. Something that I think Jesus emphasizes here with a very unusual statement. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Both things involve brokenness. I think the idea of falling on the stone is inevitably when confronted by it, you trip over it and it says you'll be broken to pieces. But if you're standing where it will fall, it will scatter you like dust. Now both sound pretty bad. I would probably rather just not be broken at all. But I think what Jesus is saying is to be broken is inevitable. But you have the choice. How is it going to happen? To be broken to pieces, at least you can be gathered up again. You know, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, when they heard the message of John, they let themselves be broken to repentance and they repented and were baptized and they followed Jesus. But the problem with the leadership is they fundamentally felt no remorse like in verse 32. And so Jesus is telling them, there's no other way out of this. You are going to be broken. Either you could be broken to pieces and God can restore you and you can be a part of this, or you can be in the way of the kingdom and be scattered like dust. And you imagine dust as it quickly vanishes into the wind 
and it just becomes invisible. I mean, there's no trace of it. So again, either you're broken to repair or you're broken beyond repair, one or the other. In verse 45, they understood full well he was talking about them. And that's, I think, exactly what Jesus wanted. Sin twists our view of what we are entrusted with. I think this is another important lesson here. The master was only asking for what was reasonable, wasn't he? And I think this becomes a caricature of pride and sin. That all of the commands, all of the instructions, no matter how challenging they are in Scripture, remember we talked about how the way of God, in a sense, although there's sacrifice, although there's trial, when we see the grace of God, we're motivated because we see how God lavishly pours his grace into our lives to make it easy. And so there were people in Jesus' ministry where they heard the message, they had an interaction with Jesus, and they followed him. Easy. But sin twists our view of what we are entrusted with. Think about the rich ruler. Think about these vineyard keepers. So here's the question of authority. Did these vineyard keepers have a good understanding of their own authority? You know, they seem to think, hey, we can just take this for ourselves. We're accountable to nobody. And then you look in verse 41, even the people who are hearing it understand he has the authority, the landowner, to bring these wretches to a wretched end. So in verse 43, Jesus says that's exactly right. And even Jerusalem had a history of God ending the city, bringing a nation to come against it, to burn it to the ground because of the hostility and stubbornness of the leadership. And what Jesus is saying is, you know these things. You know them and are responsible for it. Sin twists our view of what we are entrusted with. God has every right to call us into judgment and we need to allow ourselves to be exposed to that judgment. Even when it's hard, it's only because pride distorts our view of what we possess. Our time belongs to God. Our income belongs to God. Our energy belongs to God. Our will belongs to God. God has the right to instruct us to do whatever he calls for because it belongs to him in the first place. He has every right. And in the parable we see what he asked for was reasonable. Notice back in verse uh, 34, it says he just wanted to receive produce. So imagine like a grocery store going to a vineyard to just get a little bit. It's not as if he was saying, okay, you're done with your work. Go out on your own now. I'm taking the vineyard back for myself. All he wanted was what was reasonable, a portion of what was growing. They wouldn't even let him have that. One last thing before we look at the final parable. And I think, again, this is humbling and astonishing. Jesus was willing to lose everything and suffer even greater severity on the cross to say these things. Jesus was willing to instigate even greater wrath from the leadership in the hope that just maybe this could plant a seed for their salvation. Just in terms of how God makes it easy, who is suffering more because of these things here? Jesus was going to be treated with a greater jealous indignation for this. And they were given freedom. Do what you want. Think about it, accept it, reject it, do whatever you want with it. 
But Jesus is willing to lose everything for this one conversation. He's going for broke. So let's look at the last parable. The wedding guests. Chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. And he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. Then the king said to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So what's significant in this parable? A king had invited guests to his son's wedding feast, and they refused to come when it was ready. I want you to think about this for a moment. I think, again, like reading things quickly, you can easily, I think, lose the context of the setting of the parable. Who do you invite to your wedding? Especially if you're a father for your son. Who are the people you're going to invite? Strangers? People who hate you? People you're on horrible terms with? No, you're going to invite your closest friends, or at least the people you think are your friends. You're going to invite your family. You know, Eve and I, we had a small wedding. We invited people who were immediately in our family and just it was a small, intimate thing. And you imagine for a king with his son, he's going to invite people that he's under every impression are a part of his family, their close friends, close relatives. And yet they certainly don't respond in that kind of way. And so I think it can be easy to miss. These aren't strangers who have no idea who this is. And I think in verse 7, it's not as if he's going to war against an enemy nation, just like the vineyard keepers. I think these are implied to be people within his own kingdom. And not only do they not want to come in verse 3, it goes beyond that. The more he presses them and says, well, okay, maybe I wasn't clear. You were invited and the wedding feast is now ready. I've sacrificed everything for the feast, so come. So not only do they ignore his invitation, mind you, they were previously invited and given every impression that they were friends and relatives. In verse 6, just like the other parable, they seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. Can you imagine having that drama at a wedding feast, right? And so what's the master going to do? Now, a question with this parable in both instances of judgment, did the king have a right to this? Did he have a right to execute judgment as he willed? Let's look further. They mistreat the slaves, they murder some, 
after destroying them and burning their city, which, again, Jesus, I think, is, in a way, conveying what is inevitable for Jerusalem. Soon it would be destroyed by the Roman armies and burned to the ground for crucifying Christ. But he sends his servants, so the parable doesn't end. It's not as if the destruction of that city is where it's over. So the parable continues on. It says, go in verse 9, just invite anybody. Go to the highways. The idea is if you can find somebody, invite them, no matter who it is. It says in verse 10, both the evil and the good came and the wedding hall was filled. Well, parable doesn't end there. So now the king, at the conclusion of the parable, now he's walking through his wedding hall, which is now filled with guests. And please note this, he finds one man, just one, amidst the evil and the good. They went along the highways, rich, poor, whatever. So somehow, every, everybody, evil, good, rich, poor, everybody managed to dress in wedding clothes except this one single person. And in verse 12, you notice, he extends the benefit of a doubt. He says, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he's got nothing. He's, he's dumbfounded. He, he just is speechless. And so since he has no excuse, which again, he gave him the opportunity, you know, let's, let's talk about this, but he has nothing. The implication is he snuck in. He didn't take this very seriously. Everybody knew this was a wedding. Everybody knew what they were going to. And so he's bound hand and foot to be thrown into the outer darkness. Many are called, few are chosen. Does the king have authority in a wedding feast that he put on in a place that belongs to him and in the wedding hall that belongs to him, an event that belongs to him, does he have the right to throw people out that don't belong there? He has that right. One point before we think about some other things. I think very often when people are thinking about God and his existence, they're often asking the wrong questions. Um, unfortunately, I've been in court multiple times. You know, people can talk about whether or not they like decrees that judges make or whether or not things are fair. Every time I've been in court, though, you notice there's a lot of people in the room who clearly do not want to be there and clearly do not respect authority. But you know what happens when they're called up to the judge's seat? They stand exactly where they're told. They are quiet when they're told to be quiet. They speak when they are told to speak. And when the judge says, here's the verdict, that's it. It's over. And all of the hypothetical things you can think don't matter anymore because the judge has made his verdict and that's the end. Here's what I mean. Sometimes people think about whether or not they believe in God based on whether they, they agree with his judgments. They'll think, well, I don't like that God has done this, or there's so much evil in the world, how can there be a good and righteous God? There's just, I've experienced too much evil. Listen, whether or not you agree with a judge's decree doesn't mean he's obliterated from existence. It doesn't mean that after a judge says, here's what you have to pay as a fine for your parking ticket now, I can't say, well, I don't like this, you don't exist, sir, and neither does your judgment. And I think what Jesus is conveying to them, 
they may think things about Jesus in disagreement. They may think, well, I don't like the kind of Messiah he is. I wish he would have shown me more favor, or I don't like that he's being so harsh and hostile with us as a group, and, well, I wish he would treat us with the same, you know, the same way he teaches those tax collectors, whatever. Or I wish he would just forget about John the Baptist, not bring that up again. None of that matters. Jesus is the Messiah. And what they need to do, they need to learn to show more respect for that reality. Because this king, when that man was found in the wedding hall without wedding clothes, it's over. It's over. When those people abused those slaves and threw them out and murdered them, when that king came with his armies, it's over. And what they thought about that king, it didn't matter anymore because his rule was a reality and they were accountable to that reality, disagree or not. And so to be even more clear, the biggest issue is Jesus, a person who came in history, entered our reality, died on the cross and rose from the dead. If that is true, if that is true, no matter what a person may think about good and evil, God's judgments in the Bible, the genocide of the Canaanites, it doesn't matter. If Jesus came into our reality and died and rose from the dead, that's what matters. And his judgments are true, and we can't escape that, period. And neither could the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of all sorts. If they were going to be confronted with Jesus, he was going to confront them with the reality of his authority. I think some more relevant lessons for us, though, we're invited by mercy. This is inherently risky for God. We are invited by the mercy of God when Jesus died on the cross and bearing our sin on the cross. We're invited into God's kingdom through forgiveness, through demonstration of love and long-suffering. However, we must respect the one who's invited us. We need to respect the cost of the invitation and the place that we're invited into. Look at Romans chapter 11. I think Jesus' final parable is not just a further warning to the Pharisees and leadership, but of the disciples as well as they're listening to hear as well that just because these people are being so stubborn and there's going to be wrath against them, you're not free then to become arrogant or conceited yourselves in looking at them. Look at Romans chapter 11, 13 through 22. This is where Paul the Apostle is considering God's rejection of Jews physically to embrace those who are spiritually a part of his kingdom and some warnings that he gives as he's concluding his argument for that. Romans 11, verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, those are Jews of the flesh, and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. If the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant... Remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. 
but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. That one person who wasn't dressed in wedding clothes, maybe he thought he could just get lost in the crowd. Or maybe he was thinking, well, I mean, this isn't all that serious, right? You know, I'm just going to waltz in and enjoy the food and enjoy the celebration. He was not lost in the crowd. Again, Jesus' words serve as a warning. We may be invited by mercy, but inherently we must respect God. And we are extended mercy, but at an incredible price. Grace cultivates fear with joy. God gives us freedom while encouraging complete submission and instructing us to see that he is a master and a king and a ruler with authority. Finally, the king has the right to determine what is appropriate within his own kingdom. Turn probably one page over, the end of Romans chapter 13. It was the king's wedding. And so he had every right to determine, well, what's appropriate. And obviously everybody understood it. Everybody was dressed in wedding clothes, no matter where they came from and no matter if they were evil or good. Everybody was wearing the same thing, except for that one man. The king has the right to determine it. Look at verse 12 of Romans 13. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. What if we are found in judgment without that clothing? What if at at some point we were brought into the kingdom, let's say somebody was baptized for the remission of their sins and sincere and genuine faith and repentance, But eventually their concern for the seriousness of the kingdom and the magnitude of God's grace just isn't enough to continue motivating them anymore, to keep themselves clothed with Christ. What do you think is going to happen when they are called into account in judgment? We looked last week at the importance of the magnitude of God's mercy and grace. But these parables help us to appreciate the magnitude of that God places on our responsibility of will, that we need to see his authority, see what he's done, and we need to respond appropriately. And if we see the parables, we see that that's only reasonable for God to set those expectations. It's only helping us have appropriate apparel for the occasion. Just as it wasn't unreasonable for the king to determine it's a wedding, therefore wedding clothes. For God's kingdom to be a place of righteousness, it is not unreasonable for God to say, I'm providing you the clothing of my own son to clothe you with righteousness through faith. I appreciate your patience so much. We will end the lesson there. Um, Again, I just hope that these parables can equip all of us to be better students of our own hearts, to have more honest recognition of where we are, and when we need to have sorrow and regret to change, then may it be that God would help us have that sorrow and have that regret to make change.
If you're here and you need to bring anything forward to the church, to bring forward sin, to confess things, to make things right, or if you need the encouragement of the group for spiritual reasons, we would be open at this time to bringing those things forward while we stand and sing. Invitation.